Welcome to the RSA Events Podcast, the home of world-changing ideas and debate. Thanks so much for coming out today. Um, I'm really, really excited uh, to be here at the RSA uh, in conversation with two amazing writers um, about a book that we've all worked on together that, that's come out today. Uh, my name is Nikesh Shukla. I am a writer um, and essayist, and I, as as part of my sort of state of things, uh, for, for four years I was a, a youth worker working um, at the watershed in Bristol where I'm based on a project called Rife magazine, which is a really, really amazing magazine that gave paid jobs to young people to basically uh, make content uh, uh, for about the issues that they really, really cared about, um, be it about... Um, political issues or cultural stuff um, and it was a mixture of documentaries and videos and essays and jur- uh, journalism and articles and um, after the su- success of a book I did called The Good Immigrant uh, we thought it would be a really good idea to harness all of these young people um, that we were working with and do a similar sort of book uh, so today sees the publication of Rife, 21 Stories of Britain's Youth um, which is a collection I'm really, really proud to have um, edited or co-edited with um, Sammy Jones, who was one of my first ever mentees at Rife. Uh, and we, we had a, a slew of amazing writers uh, from Liv Little and <coughs> Charlie Brinker's Cuff, from Galdem to Rosalind Jana to Malachi Sargent, uh, and more and more and more. And I'm really, uh, really excited to be joined by two of those contributors today. Um, so we, on my, my, far, my far right, but not the far right. Uh, <laughs> I'm surprised how much nervous laughter that joke has. Every, I do it every time. Uh, and it's just a reminder that the far right is not that far away. But not you. Uh, this is Shona Cobb. Um, and, and in the middle we have Alex Diggins. Um, both uh, both uh, writers in their own right and they both contributors to um, to this to this great book. Mariam Khan um, couldn't be with us today because uh, she's not very well. So without further ado, uh, let's welcome our writers. So the, the the first thing to say about um, the book uh, is like, I, when I when I first started working at Rife magazine, we we, we were we we were really unsure as to what the magazine was going to be. We thought it would just be a collection of like games reviews and hot takes about Kylie Jenner. Um, I'm show, I'm pretending to show my age there. Um, but actually, the first piece that we got in was a piece about gentrification in a part of Bristol, and it was it was the most impassioned. Um, essay about gentrification that I'd ever read and it's, it's a subject that I'm very well versed in, it's something I read up about a lot and to read something from um, a resident of an area of Bristol who felt that she was being pushed out by student culture um, I, just, I just found it amazing that um, that's, that was what she wanted to write and slowly emerged that there was just um, so, so many people out there with so many opinions about what was happening and, and yet we just didn't see them in, um, in the mainstream media you know a, a, like we we never saw saw any of these writers getting space to um, write about things that they're really, really passionate about. And over the course of the five years plus that Rice's been running, we've had um, essays about um, all manner of things from race to cultural appropriation to gentrification to housing to g- gender to sexuality to disability and all the rest of it. And that was really the spirit of the book. And so um, the, the the book has essays that kind of cover all of these topics from Islamophobia to uh, emotional and sexual abuse to uh, mental health, which is a, a very big topic for young people. Um, 
Shona, do you want to just uh, tell us a little bit about your essay? And because uh, you you're one of the people who pitched to us in, in the open call yes. um, for the book, and I, I wondered if you could just tell us uh, a little bit about what your essay is about. Yeah, so uh, my essay is about disability, and it's sort of split into two sections really. Um, where first I talk a lot about my own story and a lot about my experiences with having uh, surgeries as a teenager and how that affected me and how it went on to affect me and um, a lot about the emotional journey there. And then I also talk more broadly about some of the issues that affect disabled people, uh, things like the benefit system, accessibility, things that are affecting us in sort of everyday life, really. One of the things that really kind of was very sobering about your essay was the sort of the, the blasé attitude that people at your school had to the inc inconvenience that you were causing them um, just by the very fact that you were disabled. Yeah, it was uh, education is a big part of sort of my story and I didn't realise it really until I started writing that how much of an impact it had on me and how even now how I was treated at school is still affecting me and that I don't have A-levels and that's really affecting my education choices and my job choices right now. Um, so yeah, writing it was really sobering to realise that actually a lot of what I went through was not okay and um, it's difficult to see it still happening now to other people. Could you read us a short bit yes. from your essay, please? So this is from the beginning. There are 13.3 million people with disabilities in the UK. We're your family and your friends and the biggest minority that anyone can become a part of, and yet we are hardly listened to. Our stories have already been written by the world around us, a world that isn't built for us. I remember the first time I went shopping in my power chair. I was so ready to grab back my independence and to say goodbye to being pushed in a wheelchair by my mum. Minutes after leaving my home, I came across a car blocking a drop curb onto the pavement, forcing me to travel on the road for over 50 metres. In town, I battled shops that you could only enter by step. My favourite shops became no-go places. Their inaccessibility made me feel unwelcome. Staff were often full of apologies when I questioned the issue, but when I took it one step further and emailed companies, I was lucky to even get a response. Nowadays, I expect to be excluded from places like shops and restaurants. I have to check the accessibility of wherever I go, information that can be hard to track down. I have to plan everything, but no one gives you a starter manual when you become disabled. There's no guide to navigating the world that hasn't been built for us. Thank you. So what, one, of the, one of the things I'm really interested in recently has been about tech and the sort of the, the, the white male gaze of technology and how technology is sort of being developed in a way that kind of doesn't um, doesn't really appreciate that people aren't all white male tech bros yeah. living in Silicon <laughs> Valley. But the, the line in your essay that really sticks with me is that the world wasn't built for us. I wonder if you could just expand on that. Yeah, um, well, it's wherever you go, you can see examples of this. And although we have laws in place and um, systems in place to change that, the fact is that, you know, these places, especially in London, old buildings were built in a time where disabled people were shut away, they were killed, where, you know, our lives weren't considered. Um, and now we're at a stage where really it's 2019 and that should be changing. But in this country, we place a lot of value on old buildings, and so there's a lot of laws also stopping any progression. So I feel like we've almost hit sort of 
come to a standstill, really, where there's so much progress that could be made, but people aren't really willing to make the big changes that would enable people like me to live my everyday life. Brilliant. Thank you. Alex, if I can just uh, move on to you. Um, can, can you introduce your, your essay, please? Your essay actually opens the collection, yeah. um, which is, you know, a, a big... A big um, a big ask, so we are we ask you to kind of wrestle with quite a, a big thing. Mm. Yeah, so my essay, um, Generations Spent, uh, deals with Britain's rental crisis effectively and kind of looks at it from a personal perspective, uh, from the perspective of a young person, um, somebody trying to start their life. Um, it tells the narrative of me moving to Bristol and then having this long, protracted and uh, increasingly embittered uh, conversation or battle with my letting agents. Um, and then it kind of moves from, from there to looking at the kind of wider societal problems around, uh, around renting the UK. And um, it kind of tackles two, uh, two specific issues, really. Um, the first one is obviously the kind of the completely runaway property prices in our central cities, which are pricing people out. And you mentioned gentrification and studentification, which is a very important part of that as well. Um, but then the second, and I think more kind of pervasive and, and um, perhaps uh, far more difficult to kind of uh, root out problem, um, is the kind of cultural attitudes around home ownership in the UK and this kind of uh, narrative which has been um, culturally and uh, legislatively uh, um, ingrained in, in, in our society. Um, around um, around home ownership and equating home ownership with success and a kind of a tangible step towards adulthood and maturity. And um, I mean, quite frankly, that's kind of just not really possible for a lot of people, um, especially young people trying to start their lives out, but also pensioners as well. There's a lot, there's a, um, I think in the section that we're planning to read, there's uh, some interesting statistics around that. So it was kind of an attempt to, to wrestle, as you say, with these issues um, and propose a few solutions perhaps. Um, not my solutions, not original hypotheses, but you know, <laughs> stuff I thought Alex was quite compelling. Alex is here to solve the <laughs> Yeah. One essay at a time. One essay at a time. Yeah, of course, you, yeah. Could you yeah. read for it, please? Uh, here we go. For me, as for many others, the troubles began with an email. Dear Mr. Diggins, it read, as you know, your initial tenancy agreement is due to expire in two months' time. Therefore, we require you to pay outstanding fees of 2,600 for the next six months. If you do not make the payment by 14th February, at that point, two weeks' time, we will unfortunately be, for, be forced to serve notice. Yours, Bristol Residential Lettings. Um, and then it moves on a little bit. Um, so it goes on. What I discovered was a rental system in crisis, a, a system that is broken and unable to cope with both changing societal expectations and the way to profound demographic pressures. A system that needs fixing, fast. But to be fixed, the nature of the problem has to be understood. This isn't easy. The reasons for the failures of our rental system are long-standing, multifaceted, and tangled. But fixed it must be, as, according to numerous studies, ever more of us will be forced to rent in the future. The state agency, Knight Frank, has predicted that by 2021, one in four British households will be private renters. Of that number, a quarter will be families of young children. The insecure and often squalid reality of shared housing is not something confined to my generation, though, the notorious generation rent. It is something that the elderly must also frequently suffer through. Countryride recently reported that around one in 12 renters is a pensioner. 
and that one pound in every 14 paid by tenants across the, across the UK comes from a pensioner's wallet. Imagine the, blinding, uh, the grind, sheer grinding bleakness of renting on a pension, watching your savings dwindle away month by month as your rent climbs with inflation and you're forced with little opportunity to earn back your carefully accumulated pension pot. What do we do? What do we do about this? <laughs> um, yeah, I, I wondered if you could just, because you, you, you do allude to, to some solutions that you, that you offer. I wondered if you could just tell us a little bit about the way forward as, as you kind of see As it. I perceive it, yeah. yeah. Um, okay, so um, there was a number of different kind of organizations I profiled in, in Bristol. Um, one of them, which is this wonderful campaign, grassroots campaign organization, is called Abolish Empty Office Buildings. And this is a way of kind of, um, they see it, and I, I see it to some extent as well, of, of tackling the crisis of, uh, of kind of our inner cities being uh, bought up uh, through property, property speculation. And um, in effect, what they're doing, and they've now got one community, which I think has like 140 renters in it, um, and they're, they're hoping to get other sites as well. They'll buy these empty office buildings, which, as I say, rent uh, estate agents send. Oh, developers just keep um, for kind of speculation reasons. They buy up these and then turn them into affordable housing. And they've done amazing things um, in in Bristol. They've turned them into. Um, they have community centres, a crash, a kind of a workshop, so local artists and artisans can get involved. Um, and um, and in general, are trying to tackle as a, as. I say this, this kind of uh, really insidious narrative around home ownership um, and, and adulthood and maturity and, and basically recognizing this kind of fr quite frank reality that a lot of us are going to be lifelong renters and, and that should be a, as a legitimate way of life as, um, as home, home ownership. Um, I think another um, quite powerful tool against this is obviously legislation, kind of uh, laws, and there's been some quite promising laws recently enacted, uh, the Tenancy Fee Act. I'm sure you're aware of it, uh, basically ban tenancy fees, and these fees could be absolutely notorious, um, something up to like £1,000 for the kind of the admin fee, which is effectively a bit of photocopying. Um, and um, so that came in in, in June, uh, June the 1st, and um, also the Fitness of Human Habitation Bill has kind of somehow squeezed through Parliament with all the other Brexit nonsense going on. Um, and that basically enshrines the right to live in a home um, that is fit for human habitation, so no faulty electrics and stuff, which is extraordinary that it's taken until 2019 to, for that to be kind of put into place. But um, I think those, those two kind of um, interlinked uh, solutions, the kind of community and tackling that narrative, and then also the kind of the laws and having a kind of a legal basis to fall back on are, are quite important. Brilliant, thank you. Um, so we're here at the RSA, you know, we've got a room full of people who um, are influential in very various different spaces um, throughout the country. Uh, and I think this would be a good opportunity for you both to kind of, so I'm just going to throw out a very open question to you. What do you think is the most important issue facing young people today? Um, uh, do you want to take it? <laughs> um, I think... It's sometimes as simple as just having your voice heard, um, especially from where I sit in a point of disability and constantly being unheard and ignored and shut away. I feel like um, people assume that things are very different now and there's always, well, since the Paralympics, it's so much better, but it's really not. And um, I think it all ties into politics and just this whole climate of not listening to young people and not giving them a space 
to be heard. And even when we do let young people speak, it's sort of brushed away and not really given as much um, importance as the voices of older people, perhaps. Or if you're lucky, Piers Morgan will call you a snowflake on Google. Yes, exactly. <laughs> that's what we all aspire to. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, but, but that's really, really interesting, this idea of not feeling heard, because if we look at, if we look at say, the big political votes of the last sort of 15 years um, and match them up against how younger demographics or first-time voters mm. voted, they, there, there seems to be a, a real mismatch between how young people are voting and what the power structures look like. Yeah, definitely in terms of Brexit, which I was old enough to vote on it at the time, but I saw a lot of younger people really frustrated that they couldn't have a say on something that in the end would affect them more than some of the older people voting on it. Yeah, I mean, I think that it's like, I mean, it's an excellent example of that kind of sense of disenfranchisement, the fact that our next prime minister is going to be chosen by, I don't know, 160,000 white middle-aged southerners, um, yeah. uh, men. Um, and um, then, you know, kind of potentially drive us out uh, of, of the EU. And I, I think um, to kind of echo what you were saying, perhaps one of the, obviously all these the kind of issues like Brexit and, and climate change and, and the rental crisis are, um, to some extent uh, entangled, but perhaps at, at root, and it certainly struck me rereading your essay, um, is this kind of failure of imagination and, and compassion, this kind of failure to put yourself in somebody else's shoes. Um, I mean, I think uh, in particular looking at the, um, the kind of the, the rental uh, issue, um, I don't know if you guys caught Jane Secker's interview, the Sky News presenter who had this extraordinary interview with this uh, renter, and Jane Secker is a uh, is a, land, a landlord as well as being, you know, a media figure in a lot of uh, with a lot of authority and clout. And effectively, she just launched into this extraordinary tirade against this poor lady who they put in front of a camera, and um, and basically said that renters uh, tenants were, were, were idiots because they couldn't uh, change light bulbs. And it's just it's such a kind of, you know, uh, a kind of degrading of, of all the nuances of that uh, situation. Um, so I think yeah, that's, that's absolutely right. The kind of that failure. What, what would you say is the most important issue facing young people at the moment? I mean, obviously things like Brexit and stuff like that are, are hugely, are hugely important because it potentially locks us out of uh, numerous opportunities and, and, um, and potentially in, in the European Union. But I, I would say pr probably climate change is one of the things and you have to only look out on the streets every Friday. <laughs> Uh, afternoon to see the kind of school climate change protests, Extinction Rebellion. Um, I mean, um, I'm based down in London Bridge and cycling over Waterloo Bridge when it was closed off um, by the Extinction Rebellion protests. It felt like something quite utopian and something quite powerful was going on there. And But it's a power that's coming from a sense of disenfranchisement, a sense of being, voice, being voiceless. It's, in, go on, go on. it's interesting leading on for that, especially in the climate change conversation, because it's a conversation that is so necessary and obviously so needed and um, obviously it is being led by young people and yet we're still seeing a lot of exclusion in it, like especially disabled people not having their voices heard within environmental issues like the plastic straw issue and um, things that have come up like packaged fruit and veg that have been cut up, there was a, an orange that had been peeled that people were up in arms about because it was in a plastic pot and they couldn't possibly imagine why that was necessary. Like you say, people just of lack the ability to see something from someone else's viewpoint. One, one of the, the things that I felt most uncomfortable with was this, was, was there's a, there was a lot of stuff being made about the protests and about how you should be actively trying to get arrested to kind of prove a point. And 
and coming from a, a background of colour, you know, we don't have good relationships with the police, you know, that, that kind of, I, it just felt like a, a very privileged position yeah, it to was. take. Um, we're kind of going back to some of the stuff that you guys have been saying. One, one of the things that really has really struck me working on Rife and working on this book um, is that the conversations around um, issues facing people in the margins, so conversations around, say, mental health or, or race or gender, and, and you know. When I was growing up, I feel like we weren't equipped with the language to have these conversations. And so, even even if, you know, I'm not saying everything's, everything's perfect and like the young people are going to save us all, um, but um, it, it definitely feels like your generation is much more equipped with the, the language to have these, kind, these kinds of conversations. Would you say that's fair or is that just an assumption that I've made because of like my bias of like just the young people I've worked with? No, I think that's fair to say. I think young people are more open to conversations about issues that don't affect them, especially in my experience. Um, I've had a lot of conversations with older people who don't even want to consider a different side or that something they're doing may be harming um, another group of people. Um, so I think definitely more open to having a conversation is just being given the platform to do so. Yeah, no, I, I completely um, agree. When I lived in Bristol, I worked in schools quite a lot, uh, kind of a spy teacher and going in and out of different schools. And um, I was actually just extraordinarily impressed by the way, by how kind of uh, switched on kind of 15, 16, 17-year-olds were and, um, and the way also that, to some extent, it's filtered into the curriculum and stuff like that. People are give, being given a chance to, 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 uh, to, um, to have those conversations, but... As you, as, as you rightly point out, then when it really matters, you know, when it's whether keep, when we're keeping Britain in the EU, whether we're, we're tackling climate change, whether we're, we're, we're tackling these kind of quite uh, really difficult pr questions, then that's when the, you hit that ceiling and, and you, can't make that, you can't make that point. Can we talk a little bit about Brexit? If you want. <laughs> I, don't, I don't feel like we've talked about it enough in this country. You know, there, is, there was definitely this feeling that um, was a bunch of people who won't live to see the kind of the consequences of Brexit deciding on behalf of people who will feel the consequences of Brexit. And mm. I, I, how, how do you feel about you know what what's happening? Like, do do you definitely feel like do you think it's going to hinder your 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 opportunities in in the future, or, or mm. do you you know you you might might have voted to leave? I don't know. <laughs> um, but yeah, if you could just talk a little bit about that, that would be... Um, yeah, I mean, uh, I, I guess like a fair few people in the audience, but perhaps not, I um, don't want to prejudge, um, I felt a real sense of, uh, of kind of frustration that this decision um, had been made on, on, on my behalf. Um, and um, obviously we haven't yet left the EU, we don't quite know what the consequences of that will be. Um, but I think that the, the, the kind of the real problems and the issues of the 21st century, whether it be climate change or, or kind of China and, and America and, and, and um, Donald Trump, um, whether that kind of, uh, those kind of problems require international and, and kind of worldwide uh, collaboration and solutions and, and shutting ourselves off and, and uh, isolating ourselves like that just surely cannot be a positive step, even if it may be in the future proves to, to have some other intended, unintended consequences. 
think for me, obviously, there is the issue of Brexit and what is going to happen when we do leave, if we do, you know, if we do leave. Um, but also for me, Brexit comes with an air of a very difficult sort of political voice and what Brexit has been built around. And, you know, obviously not everyone who voted to leave comes into this category, but obviously a lot of um, the conversations around Brexit have been led by sort of racism and, um, and obviously very led by the Conservatives and anything the Conservatives do is um, concerning to a disabled person, you know. Um, any power they're given to make any big decisions like that is um, concerning from just that point, you know, not even the practicalities of what will happen when we leave. It's just giving more power to people who don't value my life, really. Mm. I mean, yeah, no, I, I, uh, I, I think... I mean, I don't know if, if you have ever, anybody saw as they were coming in, but there was the, the rally in support of, of Tommy Robinson, Stephen Yaxi Yannan. And um, I think, I mean, it's not clearly not an issue that's confined to the, the, the problems of young people, but the kind of the poisoning of, of politics and, and the fact that you can have a rally in support of a, um, an evidently a racist and an extremely nasty man. Um, you know, it's a kind of a matter of, of, of public record. Um, is perhaps a, a um, an indication of, of the fact we've we've let forces uh, kind of multiply that we don't really know how to get back in the box. Um, so one one of the linking things between both of your essays, and I think it comes up multiple times in the book, is this kind of this concern about money, and mm. I think mon money is a you know whatever our our thoughts about late stage capitalism and all that by the by still need cash to get by um, and, and, and and it's something that I kind of it, with it comes um, a level of precariousness and um, so I mean, if you could talk a little bit about the sort of disability benefits and then kind of like one of the things that comes up in, in Shona's essay is the kind of the stereotypes around being on benefits mass, uh, sort of matched with how it still doesn't make life any more affordable. Yeah, I think there's this um, big idea that um, disabled people get a lot of money, which is so far from the truth, it's laughable. Um, and anyone who still holds that view, I'd love to have a conversation with them. Um, <laughs> And also, people don't understand how the benefit system works, especially when it comes to disability benefits. So I talk a bit about the book about uh, PIP, which is Personal Independence Payment, and then ESA, which is Employment and Support Allowance. PIP is just for the extra costs that disabled people have, which are, on average, £570 a month extra on top of what you know some of you guys might um, you know be spending in your lives. Um, and that just covers that, which... I think uh, the maximum amount of PIP you can get is about 570, but for one in five people, I think the extra costs are over 1,000 pounds a month. Um, so first of all, that doesn't even cover it. And then the other side of it is employment and support allowance, which is for those who um, can't work because of a disability or illness. And right now I'm sort of in an in-between stage where I am looking to start working. Um, and as much as the media and the DWP and the government and everyone's like, oh, we really want to save people and work, when you actually try and get work, it's not that simple. You know, there's laws protecting disabled people, but we're still discriminated against. And just this whole air of money and my money not being mine, um, 
you know, it comes into my bank account and yes, it's the government's money, but when it comes into my bank account, it's my money. And I have struggled a lot with a lot of internalized ableism and um, feeling bad if I treated myself to something because I didn't feel it was my money or whenever I, you know, I go to um, the theater, you know, whether I saw a show, I felt bad and I thought, what are people gonna think, you know, cause it's not my money. Um, but it's just, there's no win situation, you know, whether you're in work or out of work, people think badly of you. I remember one of the first essays we had on Rife magazine was from a wheelchair user talking about how her job search was in, in, entirely futile and she, she had just been rejected from a job because they said, we only have stairs here. And, and also she, she, she said, the, the problem is you kind of, you need to get to work at a time when the bus is very busy or at a time when the, you know, you have two bays for like wheelchairs and push chairs. Yeah. If it's, if it's the school run, then, you know, it's going to, there's going to be pushed. So she can't then get to work and she can't afford a car because she hasn't got a job in order to, yeah. but, and so on and so on and so, so on. And yeah, it just, it seems like a roundabout of futility. Yeah. Everything's against you despite everyone wanting you to be in work mm. it's like you know they say you need to be in work but then they don't help you <laughs> to actually make that happen I have a friend who's a power chair user who took her two years to find a job and it's absolutely terrifying right now you know looking for jobs and I would happily work in a shop I would happily you know work in a bar anything like that but it's just not accessible to me I, you know I'd be looking into going into a job which would be in an office probably quite high level for my age but because I've not been working I don't have the experience for it and so everything's against me, you know, the jobs that, you know, I have the experience for aren't accessible for me, but the jobs that are accessible I don't have the experience for, it's, yeah, it's um, daunting, you know, to start going into that. And I can definitely see how, um, you know, when people say about people staying on benefits instead of trying to find work, but they don't realise how difficult or terrifying it is to come off of that with no support. You know, I would love to be self-employed, you know, and right and everything like that and I'm probably at the position now where I could do that but because there is absolutely no support to help make that happen it's just not a possibility for me. Mm. So I mean and, and talking about money with you and uh, I guess specifically with with rent you know we've had essays on, on the website that you know talk about how one guy just couldn't afford rent so lived in a van for mm -hmm. six months mm -hmm. and um, another person you know lots of people talk, talking about moving home to to be with their parents, um, and um, so how, how much how much of your like take home pay like goes pretty much to rent here in London? Yeah, um, over half of it. Um, yeah, um, I mean I think and um, that's a choice I, I've I've made. Um, I could probably um, I could probably live somewhere slightly cheaper, but I looked around those kind of places and it's just it's. Um, it's just a minefield, you know, because often you'll be looking, uh, you'll be looking for somewhere to live on, on apps like Spare Room, or, or and um, you have no idea really what you what you get when you come there. I looked around some places which were the same, similar price to what I'm currently paying, and the landlord hadn't visited for three or four years, and the people who who were living there. Um, there was like, you know, the bathroom light switch was, was broken. I was like, oh, how long's that been going? So it's like six, six months, you know, like, and, and yet the, he was so enthusiastic on, online and it was just, and, and he, but he lived abroad. Um, so I think, 
that's it's well, it begs the, the question: What is your money going towards? Well, that, that's it, and 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 I, I think um, obviously um, the kind of financial struggles I was in uh, don't really compare at all to, to, to the situation you described, Shona. But um, I feel like um, you often, oftentimes, you're you're kind of against this kind of stubbornly steepening mm -hmm. gradient, and you just don't really know how to, you're going to get that next stage or that next step. Um, and I guess if you let that grind you down, then it can be an enormously um, bewildering and depressing experience. Someone was telling me that more increasingly, more and more under twenty-five year olds aren't uh, aren't renting a room in a flat share or a house share. They're renting a bed <laughs> in a room, which to me just sounds like sounds bizarre. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I guess I have I, I've heard of, of of things like that happening. Um, Vice have got an excellent column all about London's worst property rentals, which is told in a very tongue-in-cheek and satirical way. But it is extraordinary, you know, like a kind of a double bed will be the, the room, and it'll be six hundred thousand a month or six hundred uh, six hundred thousand six hundred thousand a month. No. <laughs> that would be genuinely extraordinary. Uh, six hundred a month or so, you know. It's an amazing uh, bed. Yeah, it's an amazing bed. <laughs> Great night's sleep. Cool. So. Um, going to throw it out to you guys uh, for questions for, for Shona and for Alex and, and I guess for me if you want to ask any questions about Rife or where I got my t-shirt from. Um, <laughs> just There are roving mics uh, coming round. Um, just, just, as, just a reminder, we are at the RSA but it does bear reminding, this is not a question. It's less of a question and more of a comment really, followed by a 10 minute story that means that seven other people don't get an opportunity to ask a question. So if you could just um, ask a question and keep it quite short, that'd be, that'd be great and we can get through as many as possible. I fear I've frightened all of you and no one wants to ask a question now. Oh, we've got one, we've got one here. There's, there's a mic coming around. Um, uh, just if you could speak into the mic just for the recording. Thank you. I guess we talk about being in a new industrial revolution and there's a lot of new innovations related, tech, tech, related to technology at this point in time. F from your experiences, how is technology helping or hindering in terms of challenges and everything else? That's a great, that's a great question. Um, in terms of being disabled, technology helps so much. Um, and, you know, things like um, the Amazon Alexa, you know, systems can be so helpful. You know, you can set up with lights and things like that, um, which would give disabled people a lot of independence. And I have one myself and it's so helpful. Um, and then there's the other side of things where there's technology being created. Um, I talk about it a little bit. There's um, probably seen stair climbing wheelchairs, which initially people think is a great idea. And, um, you know, it's so brilliant and give someone so much independence, but it's a terrible idea. Um, and disabled people keep telling people that, um, you know, because they weren't designed by disabled people, you know, people see a set of stairs and a wheelchair and they think, well, it's the wheelchair's fault then. Um, so we need to fix the wheelchair rather than building ramps and making lifts and things like that. So I think technology could empower a lot of disabled people and give us a lot more independence as long as it's directed by ourselves. You know, there's no point making stuff that is not going to help us. Yeah. I think that goes back to the point that you made at the beginning and, and it was just made about representation and who's in charge of forging this kind of brave new world. And as you say, it's like you know, 26 to, to probably 36 year olds in Silicon Valley, the Silicon Valley bros, uh, people like Mark Zuckerberg. And um, like, 
I, I think that's it, it's it's incredibly scary and and uh, and potentially incredibly dangerous because we're almost un, unwittingly letting these technologies infiltrate our, our lives and, and dictate our lives to some extent. You look at kind of dating apps and uh, and and that kind of thing, and that. That is potentially a scary moment, but I, I say that there's, there's benefits as well. So I, I, I guess we just have to wait and see. <laughs> <laughs> but but that, that idea of like the technologist gaze, I think, is a really, really important one. Yeah. You know, there, there, uh, you, you, hear, you hear stories um, about, you know, people inventing like um, ha soap dispensers, um, that would like automatic soap dispensers, but because they haven't been tested on skin that is any darker than white skin they don't they don't recognize them or um what was what was your, like um someone was like well how can you, how can we have taxis that we can order from our phone and so they invent uber and then they were like well uber can only fit four people how can we have a taxi that can pick up say 20 people at a designated stop and you then you're like you've just invented a bus <laughs> <laughs> um, and so yeah, that that this sort of idea of who who is sort of developing that, who's in the room, I always think yeah. is a really important question Absolutely. to ask. Uh, got a question here? I guess following on from the question of who's in the room is that um, if there was one thing that we could all do to upset the. Uh, apple cart of uh, power and privilege um, in favour of more inclusiveness to young people, what might that be? A really practical thing. Wow. I mean, uh, joy, a question, really right? good question. I would say from my personal perspective, joining Extinction Rebellion protests, um, uh, I, I, I think um, they're personally on the right side of history and direct action has been shown um, to have enormous, uh, to be the only way to, to really to affect real societal change. So, yeah, get on the streets. Um. <laughs> uh, I think on the other side of that, um, completely valid. I think there is a lot of pressure placed on making, um, doing big things. And, you know, you have to turn up and you have to do these big physical things which aren't always possible. Um, but I always say to people when they're like, well, how can I help? You know, there's this big problem and I don't know what to do about it. I just say, retweet my content. If I write about something... Um, that's important about access, about an issue I've had, just retweet it, you know, it gets it out there and then you're using your platform to amplify someone's voice rather than using mm. your own voice, which might not be the voice of that community. Because yeah. that happens a lot where, you know, people will read something in mind, they go, oh yeah, and then they'll write this whole big thing and I went, you've completely missed the point, just retweet it. You know, I think there are small things that we can do that will make an impact as well. And just a, a practical thing that I always do, when, especially when I'm going to um, meetings uh, and I always ask who's not in the room and one what a really practical way of doing that is to ask to see the list of invitees before you come to the meeting and then actively suggest people um, and I, I also and also whenever I can't do something I always suggest five to ten other people who can um, just to ensure that people aren't just asking me because of a certain profile and if they don't if they then because I can't do it they don't then ask someone from a marginalized background or what have you at least they then can't have that excuse that they didn't know who they didn't know who else to ask because I've given them their opportunity and then the onus is on them um, but yeah like always ask to see who's been invited to those meetings is really important I think great answers thank you thanks we've got a question right at the back I completely understand what you've said about having to put up with things, situations that older 
people older than you have caused, but especially because of one of the things Alex said earlier, do you think there are opportunities to try and get older people to work with you? Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, 100%, um, as um, I said, my, my essay very much uh, says this is a, I was looking at it from a young person's perspective, um, but it's entirely um, a societal-wide issue, the, the renting, and of course, things like climate change and, and, and Brexit and stuff, are, of course. So yeah, I, I think it, as to echo what Shona was saying, to be as inclusive as possible is, um, is of course, the kind of the right thing to, to do. There's also, there's also some really great stuff in the book. Uh, you know, as, uh, Alex's essay is a, is a real testament to like him taking something like the rental crisis uh, from his perspective, but trying to be as wide-reaching as he can with all of those people that, that it does affect. So it does go into um, what, what it looks like for um, old-age pensioners and for people in certain income brackets who are slightly older than him. And also, it talks about what's happening in other countries as well. And there, there, there are a bunch of other essays. Actually, I know this is sort of tangential. One of my favourite essays in the book, Tom Greenslade's essay, is about... Um, how young people should care for their elders, and it's about his time as a carer in in a in a home, and it's it's, it's this really warm and empathetic essay about that kind of just acknowledges that yes, young people are often sort of left out of the conversations, but there are there are ways that young people can go some distance, sort of bridging the divide between the sort of the younger end and the older end in society. Any other, anyone else? Yep, we've got a question here, and then will there someone over here? Or, no. There's rightly a lot of criticism of national politics and politicians, and I wondered, Shona and Alex, have you had any experience with local government and what that has been like, both good and bad? Um, I'll be honest. Um, I live in um, a conservative area, and um, when I've had issues in my life that relate to disability and people say go to MP, um, I haven't because I've probably made assumptions that are either incorrect or um, true that, you know, I don't think they're going to listen to me as a disabled person because of um, the Conservatives' history um, with their interactions with me. Um, but I've definitely had some really good interactions um, on the upper spectrum. I used to live in a labour area where um, I was listened to a lot and I definitely feel like I want to back away from some of the assumptions that I have and uh, reach out to my local government more and get involved because you know I complain a lot about um, the Conservatives and <coughs> problems they might have caused but I definitely don't feel like I'm doing enough to try and bridge that gap and start a conversation. Uh, I mean yeah um, uh, I, I, I suppose a little bit um, when I was working as a journalist in Bristol, I, I did a few stories, and Bristol's got um, about kind of environmental issues in the city, and Bristol's got a really extraordinary kind of Green Party presence there, and I found a lot of their representatives were, were really uh, warm, welcoming, and, and incredibly concerned by, by the issues. And I think Bristol in particular, I haven't really spent enough, lived in London enough time to, realize, to, to kind of uncover it, but Bristol in particular has got a really powerful 
and uh, really kind of fertile uh, local government presence there. Um, on the flip side of that, um, I tried repeatedly to try and get in touch with the mayor's office, which is actually a Labour administration now in Bristol, and they repeatedly battered me back, and I never heard from them. So about, about multiple uh, stories that I did. Um, so uh, I, but I, I don't know if you've uh, encountered a similar well, thing in Bristol. If, if I can jump in. Um, so Rife Magazine, the original magazine, was funded by Bristol City Council initially. So um, Brist uh, I, think, I think most city councils have like a statutory obligation to provide um, provide uh, like a, a website that advertises um, activities uh, for young people in the city and the council used to have a website called go places do things uh, which if you can imagine by the name of the site and the terrible graffiti font that they had on the site no young person ever went on and uh, the council was sort of a bit perplexed as to how to get young people to kind of engage with um, all of these youth activities. And so they approached Watershed, which is an amazing arts organisation in Bristol, who are known for kind of doing, doing quite uh, iterative and emergent and sort of slightly um, off, off the wall projects to do with technology and um, so, sort of said, w would you be interested in helping us to bring young people to, to the site? And so, Brist so Watershed, uh, after a period of consultancy with with actual young people, um, which was revolutionary at the time, uh, where they were asking the question, what, would you, what do you want to see? A lot of the young people were interested, well, they were interested in uh, finding work and um, finding places where they could skill up rather than here is a youth club that has an open session, which is what most of the listings were. And so we decided that quite a small part of what was being, what quite a small part of uh, what the budget was would actually be the listing site and actually you could kind of build a brand around inspiring young people to kind of get up and out into the city and discover things and that's how Rife magazine was born and that um, and it was very much the sort of spirit of like giving giving voice to young people to kind of tell other young people about what was available to them in the city and not just like open sessions at youth club but also here's a filmmaking course you can apply to, here's a space that you can have a rant about um, gentrification or Fortnite um, and so on and so forth. And, and, and I think it's that kind of spirit was allowed by, you know, by Bristol City Council kind of being on board with the idea mm. for a certain period. Right, <laughs> yeah. Um, yes, there's a question here. Nikesh, I just wanted to argue about your T-shirt, please. <laughs> argue? Ask you. Oh, ask me. <laughs> I thought you were going to say, no, you should not support brown babies. <laughs> um, it's uh, like a local arts uh, organisation in, in Los, Los, Los Angeles, because uh, I'm that kind of dickhead now. Um, and uh, they, they, they sort of do, they do this sort of pro these projects around um, ensuring that young children of colour have access to sort of lots of youth activities and, and when I, I just saw it randomly in, when I was out in Los Angeles because I'm that kind of dickhead now and I really liked it so I bought one. Uh, but I think the site is localbrownbaby.com. And then there's one just back here. Hey. Hello, thank you. Um, so uh, Shona and Alex, you both spoke a little bit about education. Um, 
and your experiences. I just wondered whether uh, all of you might suggest something that you would um, change about the education system or the school system or kind of comment uh, in some way about it. Uh, I would like to see less segregation of disabled children. Um, I, I don't like the term special needs school, but I'll call it that for the sake of it. Um, we have special needs schools still, which have uh, a lot of need and a lot of value and work for a lot of children, but they don't work for everyone. And uh, places are very keen as soon as uh, you know a child comes up who has a disability or they acquire a disability, it's we ship them off there straight away, um, which I don't think is always the best thing to do. And um, it doesn't help uh, in the... Uh, able children are not uh, experiencing and mixing with disabled children and that really you know pours into making uh, ableist adults really yeah I mean um, from my experience in uh, working in schools in Bristol um, I found probably the most damaging long-term thing was this culture of uh, kind of segregating uh, not necessarily um, the disabled children but um, segregating naughty children, quote-unquote. Um, as I was a supply teacher, I was often sent in to kind of supervise these rooms. And um, you'd just see the same faces day, day in, day out. And they, they weren't learning, I think. And I, I remember quite a few occasions, or one, one time in particular, uh, doing the GCSEs, I spoke to this child who I'd seen uh, quite a few times coming in. And I was like, so what have you got on today? He's like, well, I'm meant to be doing my physics GCSEs today. And I'm like, well, why aren't you in the exam room? And he's like, well, I, I haven't been uh, doing the syllabus enough. The teacher said I could just come here. I was like, come on, yeah, like, we're, missing a, we're missing a trick here. Um, I completely sympathize with teachers wanting to, to be able to control the class and perhaps take the more uh, troublesome children out of there, but just you know, ghettoizing them in, in a, a little room and, and paying a spy teacher to try to vaguely keep control just doesn't work. So. Yeah. I, 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 sorry, I would just like to add, I really want the government to give schools more money so they don't have to do fundraising for textbooks. For textbooks. Sorry. <laughs> Just needed to say that. Thank God we're not streaming live on Facebook. <laughs> um, one thing that I've seen work really well is young people on boards as young people. So if, oh, I'm a board member of uh, ActionAid and we have two trustees who are there as representative of young people and their contributions to the board are fantastic and their learning is brilliant as well from it. My question was, sorry, that was a comment. Uh, don't, don't worry, don't worry. Um, it was a good one. Was a good my one. question was, uh, are you optimistic or pessimistic about gender issues when it comes to the youth? <laughs> it, it, if I'm entirely honest, it's, it's not an... Um, I, I, mean, I have my own personal opinions, which is kind of just let people be who they feel they want to be and love who they want to be, and I don't think that's a hugely controversial thing to say, um, but I haven't really done an, enough kind of research into it. I haven't really written uh, about that, um, that kind of thing. Yeah. Do you mean in terms of like the topic of gender itself or uh, sort of gender balances on boards and things like that? I just meant in terms of gender in general. I mean, are, we, are we getting there? Is it, is it better in terms of um, It feels like it's sometimes getting worse. Um, mm. I think you know, I really don't want to judge people and, you know, put people in boxes, but young people generally, in my experience, are better at understanding um, that there aren't just two genders and that people um, experience things so differently. Um, and again, it's the same thing of people just struggling to imagine a situation that is different from themselves. I think it comes back to that a lot. And um, 
a little bit of insight, I think, would help, and people taking the time to educate themselves, um, because I think um, it's put on individuals a lot to educate others when, you know, don't always have the time or energy for that, and, you know, we don't owe people an explanation, so it'd be good to see people take initiative and educate themselves. So we've got time for one last question right here in the middle. Um, and then um, I'm going to wrap up with a very hard sell on you buying the book <laughs> and getting it signed uh, by, by these guys. I think we've all, we all know about you know um, the elderly and the old people and a couple of references to Tory party and have had a pretty good deal in recent years and they tend to vote. I just wonder whether you had any thoughts or optimism or thoughts about whether young people are now willing to engage more with the traditional political process and whether they'll turn out and vote. Mm. Uh, I think it's a really good uh, question, and um, but I, I can only kind of speak from, from my immediate social circle, but I have found friends who kind of do the, the classic kind of, oh, they're all a bunch of wankers, why should I bother to, uh, to, to vote for any of them, do tend to get shot down and, and, and people uh, are quite kind of eloquent and I think very persuasive in the fact that you might feel that sense of frustration you just want to kick out, but that sense of frustration you just kick out in your own kind of cyber uh, echo space um, isn't going to change anything. So, um, I mean, I, I feel that uh, among my contemporaries and a lot of people do vote and they feel it's a very important uh, part of their kind of civic duty. Yeah, I'm finding even when young people especially are struggling to engage with politics, they still really see the importance of using their vote, even if they're not seeing themselves in politics, the issues don't feel talked to them, you know, even when that engagement has broken down, I think, especially in, you know, again, my social circle, people still really value the importance of the vote and appreciate that they get it. There's a really great essay in, in the book by Amber Kirkford about why she feels that the voting age should be lowered to 16, which I think is really... It's really she, she makes a very compelling argument for it, I think, um, because her, she wants it to be matched with schools being forced to teach young people about like traditional politics. And, um, yeah, uh, worth reading. So we're out of time. Um, thank you so much to all of you for coming down tonight. Uh, thank you to the RSA, thank you to Watershed and to Unbound and to Rife Magazine. Uh, thank you to, to Shona Cobb, everyone. <laughs> and to Alex Diggins. You can find their social media handles in the book that you're going to purchase <laughs> afterwards. Um, but there, there are copies for sale uh, downstairs, um, and Shona and Alex and I will be more than happy to sign them. Uh, thank you to all of you for coming out tonight. I hope um, you walk away from this feeling inspired about the next generation. I think um, we've got some amazing thinkers coming up. Um, so thank you very much. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, head to our YouTube channel for inspiring talks, interviews and animations.